The very idea of running a startup has taken on so much glamour and hype. But what's it really like? Is it more about grit, resilience, even luck? What about those make or break moments where things can either come together or go totally off the rails? That's where things get interesting, and those are the stories we'll explore. From the founder's perspective, unfiltered and honest. I'm Jenny Fielding, and I'm the Managing Director of Techstars New York City. I'm also an investor, founder, and an adjunct professor of entrepreneurship. And this is Founder Rising. Super excited today to have Laura Speakerman, co-founder of Alloy, which is an identity API for financial services onboarding. I've known Laura now for probably around four years and kind of saw the beginnings of Alloy and excited for where you guys are now. So welcome. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So love to kind of start a little bit from the beginning. You have a fun founder story in that you and your co-founders met at a previous startup. We did. So just love to have a little bit of the background on how Alloy came together. Two of my co-founders, Tommy and Charles, came together in high school many, many years ago. They worked on a couple of things over the years, including a nightlife cheap drinks startup in college. Oh, right. That Uh does not surprise me. (laughs) (laughs) And our other founding team member, Scott, also went to the same high school. So I'm sort of the odd woman out having not been to uh, Maggie Walker in Richmond, Virginia. But I met them when I joined a startup that Tommy was working at, working on ACH Payments Online. We were looking at ACH as an onboarding tool and thinking about people needing to get money into an app. So it could be like a brokerage account or a crypto wallet or whatever, get their money in and start transacting immediately. And the ACH system today, these payment rails are super slow. And it means that people just drop off because it takes three to five days for their payment to settle and they don't want to wait that long to start doing whatever it is they're trying to do. So we looked at that problem. We solved it with sort of an instant ACH hack around looking at people's bank account histories and being able to risk rate them and then guarantee the funds. At that company, we realized that the problem was much larger and was really around onboarding for financial services period, not just around ACH. And we saw that there was this gap in the identity space. This was 2015 and there were people applying for all sorts of consumer fintech apps and services at the time. And what was happening was about 50% of people were being sent to manual review because, for example, their name matched a database, but their address didn't match because people move around a lot and databases aren't kept in real time. To meet regulatory standards, you'd have to call in and send in your driver's license or fax in your utility bill and just people in 2015 and even more so in 2019 don't want to do that. And so we started looking around for an identity API. We thought this has to exist. Plaid now exists for account aggregation. Stripe exists for payments aggregation. These APIs have to exist. It didn't exist, and we felt like there was a big opportunity there. So we left that company and started Alloy in 2015 with you, basically, there from day one. Well, it's interesting. I remember um, meeting guys for the first time, and you obviously had a great background at the previous company, but you had such an acute insight into the market. It was so clear to you what was wrong. And I mean, it was really interesting to see founders that just had so much conviction at such an early stage of what was so wrong. And you guys, you're really kind of like the empath founders that were like, we need to solve this problem. We don't care if no one helps us or no one believes us. This is the critical issue. So like I always found that fascinating. Yeah, I look back on it, I think it was actually this naive conviction because (laughs) we thought that this problem was one that only fintech developers had. So we were solving this like really narrow, selfish problem, not really understanding 
the market size of that, meaning that if we were right, that market size wasn't that big at the time. I think it'll grow. And then the bigger thing was like, we didn't know banks had this problem at all because we didn't come from banks and we didn't come from compliance. And I think that was to our credit because I think we probably wouldn't, if we'd been, you know, former compliance officers, we probably would not have started this particular product. But it was naive and I'm glad we didn't know what we know now. So in the early days, as you guys are figuring out what the there there is, Mm -hmm. you had a lot of resistance, things, there were kind of some false starts. So walk through some early examples of hypotheses that you guys had that took longer to play out or that were kind of a challenging dynamic. I think we had two that I can point to right now. One was actually, I think when we got into Techstars, we came in with this idea that we were going to do payments plus identity. So it was sort of this full stack infrastructure piece that as a fintech developer, you could just use Alloy and you'd have everything you needed to be able to move money. And we actually, it was during Mentor Madness that we got a lot of feedback, a lot of very critical feedback about the payments piece. And I can't remember the timing, I wish I could, but it was in that three months that we realized this was not going to be the right thing for us, that we had to kind of narrow our focus because people kept coming back to, yes, identity is hard. Payments, eh, but identity is really hard. And so fortunately, we had not come in with a product built, so it was actually pretty easy to pivot. But that was one. The second thing, we had a big false start with a bank that we kind of put all our eggs in one basket, and we didn't understand what it would be like to sell to a bank. I think it's good that we had that false start because we actually got really prepared throughout that process. But we came in totally unprepared. We had no idea what banks needed. And it taught us a lot, but it was a a very, very disappointing false start that we spent about a year on. And that sucked. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) You might remember. I do. When you think about early days also in building the team and you have people that have known each other for a long time and you guys have worked together, but there were some growing pains there. So any specific examples on how you guys have kind of navigated through having a three-person founding team, which is everyone are big personalities. You guys are all like super smart and passionate, but didn't always align in terms of visions. We've come a long way. I distinctly remember Tommy, Charles, and I, it was mostly Tommy and I with Charles sort of as a witness, like yelling at each other in Gramercy Park. And we were so different. We are so different that I think we didn't really know how to talk to each other and we didn't know how to trust each other on company building things. I think our visions more or less aligned when it came to sort of the product and the market and who we wanted to serve and what our sort of mission with the company was. We've always been aligned on that. But we are just very, very different people. And I'm not sure that it was any sort of magic. I think we could have benefited from couples counseling probably early on. (laughs) But I think it was really just having sort of conviction that we were in this for the right reasons. If we could trust each other on that, that I think we were willing to sort of work through the other things. And then a lot of it's just like you have to do things and get things wrong. You might remember Shirtgate where my co-founder wore a not ideal outfit to pitch an investor in (laughs) and got that kind of feedback. And not to place the blame on him, but just I think he sort of had to have these moments of getting that true market feedback to understand. The learning moments. The learning (laughs) moments, yes. You learn from your peers too. So I think seeing what other companies were doing around us in Techstars and and post-Techstars, sort of like just everyone's doing this for the first time, basically. And so you have to just sort of take the little pieces you can and absorb them, whether that's from mentors or from other peers or feedback from PCs or whatever it is. 
I think you guys have done an incredible job with feedback, right? And so, you know, doing experiments, getting things wrong, starting again, um, learning, iterating. I think fundraising was another area where at some points it came easy, at some points it was hard. So any specific examples to talk through there? I actually remember you saying this to us at some point that it was an important quality to be coachable, that that's something I think that you look for in uh, founders. And I think like the nice part about being sort of young, naive founders was that we sort of had to be coachable. There was no choice to be any other way because we didn't really know everything or even half of the things we needed to know. I think the fundraising is a really tough learning experience, but if you develop thick skin, and you can do that in a lot of different ways, I think some of us had resilience sort of already, and some is just earned over time, that you can decide that you're going to get something from every bad interaction too. We learned in our first fundraising process that there were going to be plenty of holes to poke in ourselves, like who we were building this team, what the product actually was. We were pre-revenue, pre-product actually for our first round. So there was sort of lots to dislike, but being able to take in the feedback, understand what, what people found compelling about us and our story was helpful to then build on for the next round. I don't, I don't know how many meetings we did, and we were so, so, so lucky that we found Nahal from ENIAC Ventures who led our round. We'd gotten rejected millions of times before that. And that to me, my lesson was honestly just like, it's a numbers game and it's a story. So you can get rejected 99 times because they don't like your story. But if you can sort of reformulate it every time and have the optimism going into every single meeting that someone will decide it's worth it. And in that case, it was Nahal. I don't know what we would have done if he said no. I guess we would have just kept going and going and going until we ran out of money. (laughs) Well, Uh, it's interesting because your first fundraise, although you did pitch many people, it ended up being oversubscribed and everyone wanted to get into that round. You go another, you know, year and a half and all of a sudden this is like super hard. So it's, you know, as founders, you kind of have to context switch quite a bit in that you can never get too comfortable, too arrogant or, you know, too assured of yourself. No, it is a good reminder. I still try to be cognizant. We had a recent fundraise too, and it's like we don't ever want to be in a position, no matter how oversubscribed or or healthy that round feels, that like you're going to get comfortable because things go wrong all the time that are out of your control. I think that was also what that first bank falling through taught us a little bit is like we cannot count on anything happening. These are big deals, big institutions that operate in ways we don't understand and can be as easy as someone leaves a company and our deal will fall through. And so that means that you're financial position or something about your product or whatever can change in an instant. And you have to be able to quickly, quickly adapt. So you guys have recently closed your Series A. Congratulations. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Super exciting. (laughs) How about product now versus then? You talked a little bit about the changes, but how in, say, the last year have you really kind of adjusted where your product is and how did you make that decision within the team? I think particularly actually when things were really hard from a company perspective, when we were potentially running out of money and we couldn't raise and revenues stayed flat, I think the sort of benefit of that was that we spent a lot of time on product and we made a really good product. And so rather than going for what I think a lot of people in startup land talk about having an MVP that you get out there and you show it to as many people as possible and you sell it and then you improve it over time and you should be embarrassed by your product and all that stuff. I'm not sure I buy that for financial services. Like I think to get banks to use this product, it had to be really good. It doesn't have to be beautiful, but yeah. it has to be Especially good. Especially on the B2B side, right? Especially <laughs> on the B2B side, exactly. 
so for us, I think that the kind of benefit of being in no man's land for a while was that we had a team of developers. We were, except for me, kind of all developers for a while who were able to focus on that and building a really great bank grade product that did all the things that a bank needed it to do. And that kind of kicked us off down a path, I think, of being very close with our few clients and getting to spend a lot of time with them and thinking about all the products that they would need on top of that and every integration point into their existing systems and how we could improve their lives rather than just kind of building something, getting them to use it, and then moving on. So that was sort of the early part of this 2017, 2018 period. And then it just caught on. So the last year, I think the product really evolved once we had a bigger diversity of clients and using our product in ways or asking to use our product in ways we hadn't really anticipated. So saying, hey, I want to use this decision engine for things like credit underwriting, or I want to use it to understand high-risk transactions beyond onboarding. So I want to look at something six months later and be able to use Alloy in that way. And that's what we, we hadn't really thought of those necessarily ourselves and certainly not focused on them. But seeing what our clients were trying to do and having that open dialogue with them, we, we talked to them on Slack, we talked to them on email, phone, we visit their offices, or we're pretty close with a lot of them. It made it easy for us to imagine the next extensions of Alloy. As you guys have raised your Series A, you're obviously scaling quite quickly, both on the product and customer side, but also on the team side. So how's that been, going from such a close-knit group of five people gradually expanding, but now kind of really bringing people on from a cultural point of view? I know that you know, culture is something that's like super important to you in particular and, and building it like a really inclusive and wonderful workplace. It's hard. It's hard. It's really hard. For context, I think we've doubled the team in the last four months or so. So we're about 30 people now. And the hard part has actually not been new people for the most part, which I, it was what I expected. I thought we're going to have all these people who don't know the history. They don't know our clients. They don't necessarily know our product. They don't know our industry. Depending on where they came from, we're going to have to spend all this time teaching them. And of course, that's true to some extent, that can be hard. But the biggest thing is sort of the existing team, everything breaks. Every way that we did everything before has fundamentally broken. <laughs> every process, every small team of one or two people now has doubled in size. And so you're trying to figure out exactly how you do things today. So I think there's been kind of two things that have helped us through that process. One is a person like our COO, Edwina, who's taken process very seriously and is very good at sort of saying like, okay, we have to just re-engineer this. It's no hard feelings. It's no one's fault. We're just going to have to think through what the best way to do this is now. And she almost approaches it like a management consultant coming in and sort of mapping everything out and everything's on two by twos and all that stuff. And that doesn't come naturally to Charles, Tommy and I, as you might have imagined. So having someone have a little bit of that DNA has been really awesome. The second thing is that we I think as employee number 15 or something, we hired a director of people. And I thought it was a little silly. I was like, well, we mostly need a recruiter, right? Or we need someone who's just going to find bodies and bring them in, which is not what this person, Kim, does. She's director of people. She works with the recruiters. But she's been fantastic because she's been a sounding board for all new people, right? Anyone who joins goes to her and learns how to adapt to Alloy and works with people like me to understand how best to onboard people and design programs around that. But most importantly, she's the person looking at the existing team and saying, what can we do right? How do we make sure that the culture stays intact? She put together a culture committee, a values committee, which deliberately didn't include the founders to be able to understand what people felt like our values were, what we should have be our values, what's aspirational, what's not. And it was a really difficult process, I think, for us to go through because we tried it, to do it on our own at first. It's sort of like hard to capture exactly what you 
think your values are and what you also like don't like about yourselves. And so it took us a long time to state what we thought was valuable about our culture and what we wanted to keep. I think the two things that I really liked about it that felt true to us and that we liked about ourselves, because there's plenty to sort of take issue with, but one was about being scrappy. So I think we've just decided that that's something, no matter how much money we raise, no matter what, we will be scrappy because it's sort of in our DNA and we really value that. We think it leads to good outcomes for our clients and our employees and everyone, even if in certain moments it feels hard. The second was that... Don't expect any LaCroix when we go to your office. <laughs> Actually, <laughs> we, we splurge on LaCroix. You do? We okay. do, yeah. It's like our small Series A fortune is on LaCroix, yeah. The second was just, we have this sort of like, be yourself kind of thing. We're like, how do we describe that? Because then be yourself is also like, don't really be yourself if you're Tommy and wearing sweatshirts with tons of holes in it to an investor meeting. Like, how do you balance that? <laughs> especially with an audience that's super uh, conservative sometimes and culturally very different. So we ended up, and I, I wish I could remember how we describe it in our value statements, but it's sort of like be yourself and be aware that the stuff we do is super critical. We handle very sensitive data. We have to be very mindful of that. That was an interesting process and it, it will be ever evolving and we just have to be, it's like brushing our teeth. I think we just have to treat it like something we revisit all the time. That's kind of incredible that you brought on a head of people at Employee 15. That's, you know, really differentiated, I'd say. Yeah, it is. And it felt weird at the time. I didn't disagree with it, but I was like, this is going to be an interesting experiment. And it turned out to work fantastically. As you guys have evolved, you've created a great advisor group, mentor group, and, and pool of people that you kind of reach out to. So how do you think about evolving that? And what are some of the learnings from creating that group? Again, the nice part about being sort of naive in this is that we're not too conceited or too sort of we know it all to ignore other advice. So we knew we had to seek out other people who were experts in certain aspects of our business that we just, we were new to a lot of this. We had to be open to that. I think we had a good community from Techstars where there was a lot of fintech expertise in the mentors that we were in touch with through that program. So people like Charlie Kroll, from Andira. We sort of got lucky, I think. The program was designed that way, but there was, for example, Charlie was someone who'd built almost an exact version of what Alloy ended up being at his previous company. And so there were a lot of people like that. There was sort of serendipity. And we put a lot of effort into staying in touch with some of them. So part of it was, I think we were authentic from the beginning about wanting to learn from them, engage with them, just even be friendly with them. That was very sincere on our part. And I think that came across. I think as we've evolved, our focus has changed about what we need. Early on, we didn't need marketing help because we just needed like two customers. Then I think in the last six months, I spent a lot of time thinking about marketing. Like we don't have anyone who does it. I don't know how to do it. So I'm just very conscientious about who I'm going to try to reach out to, what kind of help I'm looking for and my questions for them. And people are really willing to share and they want to help. It makes them feel good. It makes them feel smart. makes them feel worthwhile. And so I think that's been really a nice learning for me is like, generally, if you ask someone for help, they will help you. So I spent a lot of time asking for help. <laughs> and interestingly, one of your mentors early on ended up leading, you know, all these years later, you'd stayed in touch and ended up leading your Series A. So yes. that's kind of a cool story of, you know, relationship building and over time. Yes. And that's one where I think, you know, this is Charles Bernbaum from Bessemer. We'd met him during Mentor Madness at Techstars. He's rejected us like four times for funding so much that Brad from Primary was like, don't even bother 
talking to him about, you know, in the Series A, he's not interested. <laughs> but Charles had stayed in touch with us almost as a friend throughout the years. You know, he would touch base and we always felt like it was very sincere. He was not trying to just get information from us or check in to see whether or not we'd made, you know, millions of dollars yet. And then he would engage. He just sincerely would approach us at when we he knew we'd be in the same city or whatever and, and find time with us. I think a lot of this has just been about having these authentic relationships with people. So part of the theme of the podcast is really around founder resilience. And you guys have demonstrated a lot of resilience over the years um, through ups and downs. So what kind of keeps you going, you know, through the through the daily struggle? I know there's things that come up all the time with you guys. And so how do you keep going on that? One of the benefits of Tommy and I at least being so different is that we'll experience ups and downs really, really differently. And so sometimes, I think especially in that period where it felt like nothing happened at Alloy and we were just on a slow decline to shutting down, Tommy was he felt like it was maybe inevitable, I think, and was just really worried and it felt very existential. And I think I have the ability to compartmentalize in certain ways. And that might be a mean where he's in, more in tune with things than I am, but I'm also then able to sort of be like, well, we're just going to carry on and like, I think this will come through. So I think we, because we deal with things in really different ways, it keeps the team going in different ways. He's also much better at getting people really excited about things than I am. So that's an important part to resilience is like, let's take the little things that are going well and celebrate them. Let's take the fact that we're a team and enjoy working together. Even if this all goes wrong and we just run out of money, let's at least acknowledge the fact that what we have been doing has been fun for the most part, not always. And I think that actually talking about that pretty frequently, the fact that we just really enjoyed the actual work, we really enjoyed the problems we were solving, made it easier to show up even when things were bad. Because we're more than five people now, we have to be a lot more deliberate about how we share that information, share those wins. Our COO, she's really good at saying, like, you have to talk about this at all hands. You have to acknowledge this person or this thing that happened in front of everyone because it means something. I think celebrating small wins is a great way to end. Thank you so much, Laura. This was great. Thank you, Jenny. Thanks for listening to the show today. We'd love to hear your feedback, ideas, and what kind of stories you'd like to hear next. You can find me on Twitter at J.E. Fielding. 